0: Now I trust you found your place in the twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. We've come now to another great chapter here in this very great book that we've been studying. We're in the practical section now. We began in chapter 11, that Christ brings better benefits and duties today. And we've seen that that comes to us through faith. And faith is reality. It's not dream stuff that we're talking about. The 11th chapter has been called the faith chapter of the Bible. And if that is true, then I would call chapter 12 the hope chapter of the Bible. And if that is still true, then I would call chapter 13, the last chapter, the love chapter of the Bible. So that, friends, we have now come to the 12th chapter, and it's the hope chapter, and it's divided like this. I'll get rid of the mechanics right here at the beginning, but these help us to understand, and if you have our notes and outlines, you'll be able to follow along. We have first the Christian race. That's in the first two verses. Then we have believers are now in contest and conflict. And that is verse 3 through 14. And then beginning with verse 15 through the rest of the chapter, you have the sixth danger signal that we have in this book. And this danger signal is the peril of denying. Actually, when we come here to chapter 12, we want to read verse 1 and get into this. This is a very wonderful statement made in the first two verses. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I want us to take a look at these two verses, they're quite wonderful. And they need to be understood. We have in the first part of the epistle, the peril of drifting. Hearers, just being hearers and just drifting along, doing nothing about God's salvation at all. Now, in the last part, he's speaking to believers and the peril of remaining stationary. Let's get in the race. Let's start moving. Let's get going, but not drifting, you see. We're racing. And I would say that the greatest danger in the Christian life is at this particular point the peril of just remaining stationary, doing nothing. There is a grave danger, they tell me, in the far north, when you're out in the cold and can't find a place, get lost, that there's a danger of freezing to death. And the First step of it is you go to sleep. You just have to fight it. You can't keep from going to sleep. You have to keep moving. If you don't keep moving, you'll freeze to death. Well, I would say that that's the grave danger of believers today, the danger of just doing nothing, going to sleep. I would say that's far more dangerous than the peril of drifting today of really being just heros. That's bad enough. But this is something that is tragic indeed. Just staying right where you are. I've told the story before. The old cowboy back in the great meetings they used to have in West Texas years ago, a little lady with a sun bonnet got up to give her testimony. She said the Lord filled up my cup 20 years ago. And she said that, Nothing has run in, and nothing's run out. This old cowboy in the back, he spoke out. He said, I bet it's filled with wiggletails now. And I think that's the condition of a lot of the saints today. They say that the Lord's filled my cup, but there's been no running over. They've just remained that way. And I agree with the cowboy. There's a whole lot of wiggletails in a lot of these cups that people are boasting of. Therefore, we are told here we are to move out. We are to live by faith. Why? Wherefore, and wherefore is another one of these little words that is cement, that holds the chapter that goes before with the chapter that's coming up, and that's what it does here. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, for many years... I took the position that the witnesses were these saints that are mentioned in the Old Testament, and many of them listed in the 11th chapter, and they're sitting in the grandstand watching us run the race of life today. Well, I personally couldn't think of anything that would be more boring for them than to watch us run the Christian race down here. That is the way some of us are running it. But it doesn't really mean that, although it caused me to lose a marvelous story that I'd heard, and I'd like to pass it on to you because it is a very sentimental story and it does make a point. There was a famous football coach in the East, and I heard this at the kickoff luncheon in Pasadena years ago that is given before the Rose Bowl game. A friend invited me to go with him, and one of the newscasters told about this famous coach in the East, that he had a football player that was famous for two things. The first thing was he was noted for his faithfulness at football practice. He was the first one out and the first one to leave the field. But he never could make the team. He just wasn't quite good enough. The second thing, though, he was famous for is that he had a father that visited him on the campus. And he and his father would be seen arm in arm walking across the campus, very much engrossed in conversation. And everyone, of course, noted that. They thought how wonderful it was. Well, one day the coach got a, telegram saying that the boy's father had died, and they felt he was the proper one to transmit the sad news to the boy. He had called him in and told him. The boy was greatly shaken, of course, and had to go home for the funeral, but he was present at the next game, the next Saturday, and he was sitting there on the bench, and he came to the coach, and he said, Coach, this is my fourth year and my last year And I've never played in a game. And I'm wondering if today you just put me in for a few minutes and let me play. And so the coach put him in because the boy's father just died. And he put this boy in and he turned out to be a star. He never saw anyone play a more brilliant, better game than this boy played. And he never took him out of the game when it was over. He called a boy off to the side, called him by his name. And he said to him, listen, I've never seen anyone play like you played today. But up to today, you were the lousiest football player I've ever seen. I want an explanation. He says, well, coach, you see, my dad was blind. And this is the first day that he ever saw me play football. Well, may I say to you? If this verse of Scripture means that those that have gone before are sitting in the grandstand watching us, then that would be true. But unfortunately, that interpretation just won't stand up at all. The witnesses here are not actually sitting in the grandstand. They are the ones that have run the race down here. They are the ones that were down on the racetrack and you and I, are the ones sitting in the grandstand, as we did through chapter 11. And we watched them run the race of life, and they ran it by faith. Those that would be called a howling success for the world, they did it by faith. And then those that suffered what the world would call miserable defeat, those that suffered and were slain with the sword, those that suffered and endured, they went by faith also, and they're just as great heroes, and they witness to us, we are watching them, or have watched them, as we went through the 11th chapter, and you could go through the Old Testament, and I'm sure pick out many more, because the writer said the time would fail him to tell of all of it, there were many there, and they witness to us, and encourage us, to run by faith, to live by faith. The Christian life here is likened to a Greek race. Christ is the way to God, and along the way, the Christian is a soldier. He's to stand, and as a believer, he is to walk. But as an athlete, he is to run the race. And one day, we're going to fly, friends. That'll be at the rapture. We're going to do a little space travel to the new Jerusalem. Now, we're told here that we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and we're told, let us, let us. And we have another salad here, Let us salad. Let us lay aside every weight. Now, this is not a danger signal put up at all, but it's a challenge to us. Let us lay aside every weight. And let us lay aside every sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The point is this. Let us get now out of the grandstand. Let us get down on the race course of life. Whatever God has called us to do, and wherever he's called us to live and move and have our being, let's get out on the race course And let's run the Christian race. Let us move out for God. That's the whole thought. A lady went into a department store years ago and went up to a floor walker and said to him, do you keep stationary? Oh, he said, I move around every now and then. Well, my friend, there are a lot of Christians. I think you could say to them on Sunday morning, do you keep stationary? And I doubt whether they could say they ever move around very much. We're told here, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. But we're to do two things here. One is, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now, God has saved us from sin. He's brought us into the heavenlies, actually into the holy place. And he's made us to sit. In heavenly places. He's given us his Holy Spirit. Then you and I fall down and stumble and wander like a man lost in the dark. What is wrong today with the Christian life? That is, as it's being lived at the present time. Well, I come back to the same string that I play on all the time because I think this actually is the answer. The problem is that Christians do not go on with God. Many times they get saved, and then they start giving a testimony, and that's all they ever have. They never start studying the Word of God. That's the important thing. It's like the little girl that one night she fell out of bed, and her mother rushed in to her because the little girl began to cry. And she said to her, honey, says how come you to fall out of bed? And she says, I think I stayed too close to the place where I got in. Well, that's the problem of the Christian today. The reason we stumble and falter and fail today is because we're staying too close to the place where we got in. We need to go on. This is a race. We're to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. The Christian life, it's a race. Win or lose, all are to win. And this is the only race in which everybody can win. Paul put it, says, know ye not that they which run in a race, all run. All run to receive a prize. Paul says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. And then he could rebuke some of his followers. You were running well. What did hinder you? Now, the conditions to be met, first of all, is to be encouraged by these witnesses. They're not spectators. They're testifying to you today. They're in the cheering section. They're encouraging you and me to run the Christian life. Abraham is saying to you and me, move out by faith. Moses is saying to you and me, move out by faith. Daniel is saying to you and me, move out by faith. Now, the two conditions, laying aside the first, and that's the negative side, laying aside every weight and the sin. What does it mean by laying aside every weight? Well, it simply means this. Weights are highly unnecessary in a race. In fact, They are not essential at all, and we ought not to be using weights. I remember years ago when Gil Dodds was one of the famous runners in this country. He was here in Southern California. He was a very fine Christian. Some of us went out to the track at USC to watch him run, and he ran around a couple times with tennis shoes on. He stopped them off and put on some other little shoes, and one of the Fellas, they asked him, why did he change shoes? He had on tennis shoes already. He just took one of the tennis shoes, pitched it up, took one of these other shoes and pitched it up to him, told him to feel them. And believe me, there was really a lot of difference, enough difference that had caused him to lose the race. And that's what he said. Now, may I say that in the Christian life, there are a lot of things, friends, that are not wrong in and of themselves. But Christians shouldn't be carrying those weights around because you won't win. Now, I'm going to use this illustration and don't think I'm picking on any particular thing at all because I'm not. You have to determine what you can do as a child of God. And I have to determine myself what I can do as a child of God. A young lady went to her pastor and said to him, Is it all right to dance? And he said, sure it is if you don't want to win. The whole point is, it's not a question of right and wrong for a Christian in his conduct. It's taken for granted you're going to do what's right. It's not the question of whether this thing is right or wrong. But will this hurt my testimony? Will this keep me from winning? Will this be a weight in my life? And there are many Christians today that are carrying around a weight, and they ought not to be carrying around a weight. A lot of things, friends, that are not wrong. Don't ask me to argue with you about whether dancing is wrong. I won't. I won't argue with you about any of these things that these separationists argue about today that you can't do this if you're a Christian. I don't say you can't do it. All I'm saying is are you in the race? You want to win? You're looking under Jesus, and that becomes the important thing, you see. Now, what is the sin? And I emphasize that. It says, laying aside every weight and the sin. This is not just sin we're talking about. It's the sin. Well, we cast back on the last chapter, because wherefore that opened this chapter took us right back. So it has to be the sin that was in the last chapter, What really was the great sin of the last chapter was unbelief. Unbelief is the sin, and there's nothing that will hold you back as unbelief. It's just like trying to run a race with a sack of wheat on your shoulders, that's a weight, and sticking your feet down in a sack, an empty sack, and trying to run a race. You'd never be able to do it, friends, and you can't do it in the Christian life. Unbelief is what holds many of us back. And if I may make a personal confession, I'm confident that has helped me back more than anything else in my Christian life. Now in the 12th chapter, in verse 3 now, he says, "...for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds." Now we are called to endure, and we are to consider Him. I am going to say something next time in connection with this section, but let me just mention this at this time. These people have come out of a religion that had a tremendous ritual and a great temple, the temple of Herod, though it was not completed even up to the time it was destroyed in 70 A.D., was a thing of beauty and awe-inspiring. And there was a great ritual that went with that. It had been a God-given religion at the beginning, and it had been debauched and prostituted by this time. But nevertheless, if you go in for religion, they had it. Now they are giving up all of that, and they don't go through all that religion they have now come to consider Him. That is, it's Christ, and He is everything. He's the temple. He's the ritual. He's Christianity, friends. He's it all. And there was a simplicity about this, and next time I want to talk a little about the simplicity that we hear today in Christ and all this believingism that's going around. But the important thing is, There was this simplicity in Christ, and they now are to consider him. First of all, they are to know he endured when he was down here, and he learned patience. And we were told at the beginning of this epistle, in that section that presented his humanity, that he learned a great many things down here, though he's God. But in the flesh, he learned something that actually... God had experience, and that was to take on our humanity and suffer for us. And he endured, and he learned patience. And now he says, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Now, my friend, may I say this to you very candidly today? I want to be very careful. And it's this. Unless you stay close to the Word of God, which will keep you close to the person of Christ, where the Holy Spirit can take the things of Christ and make them real to you, you're going to get weary in the Christian life and you're going to faint in your mind. That's the reason there's so many discouraged Christians around today. My friend, you come to the Word of God and get close to Jesus Christ And you're going to be encouraged, and you're not going to be wearied about this life down here. We're living in the greatest days that there ever has been. Notice verse 4. He says here, "...ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin." Now, that simply means this. At this time, the temple was not destroyed. Persecution that was going to come from the Gentiles, the Roman Empire had not yet broken upon believers. And he's saying to them, you just haven't yet resisted under blood. Though you're having your problems and trouble, the only cure for your weakness and your weariness and your faltering and your failing and your stumbling and your discouragement is to consider him. Consider Christ, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, verse 5, he continues this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Now, there's several things here that I think we need to look at. First of all, he's quoting from Proverbs, the third chapter, verse 11 and 12. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. Now consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. And in doing that, he says, you've forgotten now their only resource was Christ, and not a temple, not a ritual, not a religion. They were almost outcasts at this time. And he's saying here, don't forget this exhortation from God that he speaks to his children. And by the way, I would also say that the word children is used here. That's one word. And then we have five references now and the word son is used. And that's a different word. Now, the word son is weos and it means a full-grown son. There are a great many saints today that do not think they need to be disciplined. This is for mature saints, people that have been at this a long time. And this is where... I came in, by the way, I came to the place that I didn't need to be disciplined anymore, that I'd come a long ways, and the Lord put me flat on my back and let me know that there was some more discipline to be done. But notice what he says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor fate when thou art rebuked of him. Now, this is a marvelous verse. In fact, it's a great verse. And we need to notice another word here, and that's the word chastening. And that word chasten is a little different word than we think of it. We think that it's punishment. And I want to say this to you, that the word chasten here is paiduo, and it means child training or discipline. You see the Lord disciplines his children. He's going to make that perfectly clear here that he disciplines his own. Let me read this section here, and I'll come back to it. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? For if ye be without chastisement... Whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. That's strong language. But some of the church members need to hear this passage of Scripture today. It's an important passage of Scripture. Let me say this. The question is sometimes asked, and it's a very pertinent question, why do the righteous suffer? This is the thing that I got into during this period which I've been confined to my home and all I've been able to do is just lie flat on my back most of the time and the rest of the time I've been permitted to study. I want to go into this. I've done this in depth and I'd love to pass this on to you because I'm speaking out of an experience. God's children suffer. Let's put that down as an axiom of Scripture. The Bible doesn't argue that. The Bible just says that's true. Why do the righteous suffer? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all. You remember in the book of Job we're told that man's born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. And the Lord Jesus said, In the world you're going to have trouble, but be a good cheer." I've overcome the world. And even Paul says, if any man will live a life today in Christ Jesus, he's going to suffer persecution. Why do God's people suffer? Now, there's no pat answer for that. No little one verse of Scripture answers that at all. I have gone through the Scripture, and I have listed seven reasons why God's children suffer. I'm going to mention those. And I hope I'm able to cover all these today because I think they're very important. First of all, let me say that we as God's children and as sons, mature sons, we suffer, many of us, for our own stupidity and our own sins. Let me read one verse of Scripture, 1 Peter 2.20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted... For your faults, and that word's harmitano, that means a sin where you miss the mark. You just don't quite make it. Ye shall take it patiently. He says there's nothing to that. That's no value because a lot of times you and I suffer because we played the fool. How many of you listening to me today that years ago you invested some of your savings in a wildcat oil well down in Texas? I was pastor down there for many years. I can tell you about a whole lot of folk down there that have a dry well today. Actually, I know one man that he and his family are practically in want. He suffered, but he suffered because he actually played the fool. I know another man right here in Los Angeles. He came in to me, and he says, you know, McGee, I have certainly played the fool. Well, I said, what'd you do? Well, he said, my wife and I, we haven't been getting along too well recently, and in the office, she's not my secretary, she's a very attractive woman. She was very sympathetic with me, and she had to work one evening, and I had to work, and I'd call my wife, and I had to work, and all of a sudden, it occurred to me, it'd be nice if we went out for dinner. I said, frankly, we didn't do anything other than just go out to dinner. And he says, we sat. And he said, very frankly, it was a very friendly sort of a dinner. And he said, the wrong person was in that restaurant and saw us and called my wife. And it never went any farther. It might have. But he said this to me, I played the fool. You know, a lot of saints suffer because of their stupidity. And then a second reason we suffer is for taking a stand for the truth and righteousness. And I'll guarantee you, if you take a stand for the truth and righteousness, you're going to suffer. And how many men and women could testify to that today? And that's in First Peter three fourteen. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be trouble. So that's another reason some of the saints are suffering today. They've taken a stand. They did it deliberately. They're standing for God. Now you can play the fool in that connection. I know a man that came to me and told me that where he worked, everybody was his enemy, and it's because he stood up for God. Well, one of the men who was an official in that concern, I asked him about it because he was a Christian, and he told me what he did, how this man tried to lecture everybody, even during work hours. He'd go and begin talking to somebody who's busy. And... That wasn't the place to witness. And he said that he'd made himself an absolute nuisance. Now, he wasn't really suffering because he took a stand for truth and righteousness. He was just stupid. That's all. I mean that you take a stand today for that which is right without making a fool of yourself. You don't have to do that. Take a stand for righteousness and you'll suffer for it. Now, there's a third reason. You can suffer for sin in your life. Paul says, if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. Now, if you and I won't deal with sin in our life, I'll tell you this, if you are his child, he'll deal with it. He'll judge you. Now, the fourth reason, you can suffer for the past sins of your life. Be not deceived, God's not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh you shall of flesh reap corruption. Nice talking to believers. Best illustration I have of that is one time that we had Mel Trotter. He was a converted drunkard years ago in Nashville, Tennessee. And after the service, we went to a place called Candyland. The rest of us got big sodas, you know, malts. And he got a little glass of soda water. And they began to kid him about it. And he made this statement, When the Lord gave me a new heart, He didn't give me a new stomach. He was suffering because of that. And so that's another reason. And then there's a fifth reason. And that's a very lofty, high reason. And you find that in the book of Job. Job suffered because he was demonstrating to Satan and the demon world and to the angels of heaven that he was not a time server, that every man does not have his price, and that he loved God for himself alone. And I hope I never am put in that place. Then there is a sixth reason. We mentioned that before. It was in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Some demonstrated their faith, and there was great victories won. Some were delivered from the sword, but he also says some were slain with the sword. I think of the French Huguenots. They went into battle, they all knew they'd be slain, but they went into battle singing, If God be for us, who can be against us? You see, they suffered for their faith. Now I come to the seventh and the last one. That's what we have here. It's for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now that's different. Word chasten, as we've said, is child training, it means discipline. That's not punishment. You see, a judge punishes. A father chastens, and he does it in love. Punishment is to uphold the law. God uses chastening to demonstrate how much he loves you. And he makes it very clear, you're an illegitimate child if you're not chastened to the Lord. A great many people say, oh, why did God let this happen to me? I must not be a Christian, my friend. The best proof you are a child of God is the fact that you suffer. And it's severe, and it hurts. And that's what he goes on to say here in verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. We'll talk about that later. It's sort of like the boy that his father said to him before he whipped him. He said, son, this is going to hurt me more, and it hurts you. And the boy says, yes, dad, but not in the same place. God chastens his children. I don't think he gets any particular joy out of it, but it's because you and I need that. Now, I want to give this personal testimony because this is such an important section that we're in. And then I'm through for today. You will forgive me for being personal. When I had cancer several years ago, my first question to the Lord was why? It didn't take me long to discover why. It was my heavenly Father punishing me. That was punishment. I know that now. And I got things squared away with the Lord. I was a hard-headed child of God, you know. And so when I began this radio ministry and everything has gone so wonderful, and I came back off this trip feeling so good, and then I'm knocked down with not only the diverticulosis, but hepatitis. And the doctor says, you stay there. On your back, don't you leave the place. And I stayed there for three weeks. I want to say to you, I learned something. I'd like to pass this on to you. He wasn't judging me this time, because I keep my account short with God. I get him straightened out about every day. I fail him, and I'm still as hard-headed, I guess I ever was. But I go to him, and I confess it. I believe him in the will of God. I went to him and cried this time, and I said, Lord why in the world do you let this happen to me? I want to go on with my program. And he put me flat on my back. He says, you're my son. I'm your father. And there's a lot of things you don't know and a lot of lessons you haven't learned. You may have the notion that your ministry today is essential and that I can't get along without you. <laughs> but after all, how did I get along without you before you got here? And you think that these conferences that you had to cancel and I had to cancel? Friends, over a dozen conferences, oh, I cried out to God because I wanted to make them all. Some of them up in the Northwest, and I love those people up there, and I wanted to go up there. And the Lord said, no, you're not going. You're going to lie here. You're going to learn something. You're going to find out something, that I'm your father, and that you've got to learn to endure for me. You do not know how to rest. You do not know how to wait on me. And you know, I've been lying flat on my back most of the time looking up. And it took me a long time. I crawled up in bed and I said, all right, Father, you want me to lie here, I'll lie here. And I want to learn the lesson that you have for me. Now, when I was a boy, I got in trouble and several other boys and I saw one morning my dad coming across the schoolyard. And when he got to the school, you know that there were several hundred children there. You know who he was after? He was after his son. And he took his son and disciplined him. He didn't discipline those hundred other children. They weren't his children. If they had been, they'd been illegitimate. But he disciplined the boy that's his boy and the boy that he loved. My heavenly father cause my earthly father, died when I was 14. And it took me a long time to get another father. And that father's my heavenly father now. And he does the same thing. He disciplines. And now this is important for God's children to know. And it's to help us endure. Now, he goes on here and he says, "...furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence." Believe me, I listened to my dad. I hadn't heard about the new psychology that you don't pay any attention to your parents or that they don't discipline you. My dad disciplined, and I listened to him. Now, he says, if we listen to our earthly parents... Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now, I want to tell you, if you listen to your earthly father, when he disciplines you, you better listen to your heavenly father. And he makes a suggestion here, and I think it's only a suggestion. He says, you listen, you be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live. Now, what do you mean by live? Live it up. Well, I think that he meant to live the Christian life in all its fullness. But there's also the negative that's there. And that is the Heavenly Father disciplines in a very severe way sometimes. There is a sin under death. And that is a sin that a child of God can commit. And sometimes the Heavenly Father calls his child home. We're going to see that later on when we get to the epistle of 1 John, that the Heavenly Father sometimes takes a disobedient child home out of this world because he's disgracing him. Now, he says, you better listen to your Heavenly Father. He's doing it in love. But if you possess Him going on, He may take you home. If you want to live and live it up down here, my friend, that's the thing that I settled with the Lord when I had cancer. I said, oh, God, I want to live down here. And he was good to me, and he's let me live. And then when I had this last trouble, I went to him again, and I knew that nothing now. oh, there's a lot of things wrong in my life. I'm sure not perfect. If you think I'm perfect, ask my wife. She can tell you differently. But I want to say to you that I want to live. And my Heavenly Father, I found out he was just disciplining me. And I was learning a lesson. And he did it in love, and it changes the whole picture. Now, verse ten: For they, that is, the earthly ones, they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure. My dad died when I was fourteen, and no more was I under his discipline. And I think sometimes he got a little angry with me, and vented his anger on me. But even then, but he did it for our profit. That we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, my dad did it for my prophet, I'm sure. But my heavenly father, he does it for my prophet down here. Now, when you listen to verse 11, and I want now to see what should be the reaction of a Christian to the discipline of God. And there are several reactions you can give. Verse 11, for instance, Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. And I'm willing to say that it not only doesn't seem to be joyous, it isn't joyous, but grievous. That is the experience. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, he wants us to profit by it in order we might be a partaker of his holiness. And I believe, friends, that there's no way in the world to make you a full-grown, and I think that's the main thought in holiness here, a full-grown child of God, living in fellowship with him, except through the discipline of God. Now, down here, why may I say that he disciplines us and no chastening at the time is fun. But afterward, we're told, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, God just doesn't let you be disciplined for no purpose in the world. Just like the man that was in the funny farm. And there was a visit to there one day, and this man was beating himself on the head with a baseball bat. And so the visitor went up to him. He says, why in the world are you hitting yourself on the head with a baseball bat? Well, he says, it feels so good when I quit. Well, my friend, God just doesn't do it to you, so you're going to feel good after it's over. Now, there is a purpose, always a purpose, in the discipline of God for you and me today. And my friend, that is something that, I want to dwell on now for just a few moments because I think, again, I'm in a spot where it's very, very important indeed. Now, what is your reaction when God disciplines you? Well, actually, there are four things that are mentioned in this passage of Scripture here, and I'll have to go back and pick up the others that I passed over. Back in verse 5, he says, "...and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him." Now, he mentions here the first thing you can do, you can despise that. That can be your reaction. That is, That means that you treat it lightly, that you get no message from it at all. You become, I would say, a fatalist. Well, everybody has trouble. I'm having trouble. And it's not meaningful to you. You don't get God's message in it at all. You just treat it lightly. You don't recognize the fact that your heavenly Father is disciplining you in all of this. Now, that's one reaction. You can just absolutely ignore it altogether. And a great many do that. They just take it in stride and say, well, yes, I'm sick, everybody gets sick. This happens to the human family, and they don't see any purpose in it at all. Now, that's one reaction to it. Then he mentions here something else, nor faint, you see. And there are those that take that viewpoint. I would say this is the crybaby reaction to it. You begin to cry and say, why did this happen to me? It's not worth living the Christian life. I have served the Lord, and now he's let this happen to me. And you just faint away. And there are a lot of saints that take that attitude. I have been absolutely overwhelmed because I have received, since I've been sick, over a thousand, in fact, several thousand letters from people all over this country and out of this country, throughout the world. And some of these people, they're lots worse off than I am. And some of them made me feel ashamed of myself. They've been on beds of pain for months and several for years. And they write the sweetest letters that you've ever seen. And they come from folk. They've got a real victory. I'll be very frank with you. I hear about these meetings where people go and they're healed and they talk about great victories. You want to know where the great victories are being won today? Go to the hospital or go visit some dear saint that's been on the bed for months, years maybe, and listen to them talk. They make me ashamed of myself, I'll tell you that. But you can faint, though, but these people don't faint. I tell you, the Lord is strengthening them. Now, he has another message here, and this is a dangerous way because it's so close to that which is true, and that is, you can endure it. Well, somebody says, that's what he says, if ye endure chastening. Yes, but these are the super-duper pious saints I like to speak of them as like the Indian faker. And I think they're a faker too, but a different kind of one. Over in India, he crawls up on a board filled with nails, and he lies down. He doesn't have to lie down there, but he does it. And there are a lot of saints today, they accept this in a passive way. Oh, this is to the Lord, and I will endure it, you know. He never asked you to take that pessimistic, that super pious attitude toward your trouble. Why don't you go to him and ask him, Lord, why did you send this to me? There's a lesson here, and I want to learn the lesson, and not accept it in that passive manner. And I've had a few letters like that. Oh, this is something that I've endured, and I'll just go on enduring it, you know, in a passive way and complaining all the time. Now, here is the fourth one. And he mentions that here in verse 11. He says, "...nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." Now, you can be exercised by. Did you ever take setting up exercises? I play golf on a golf course where there's a man I've got more or less acquainted with him. He jogs around the course while I play golf, and he does that to lose weight. He is inclined to be a little chubby, and so he's doing that to lose weight. He exercises, you see. now, I've thought of that in recent days. Are you exercise when you get in trouble? when you have to suffer, when your problem comes to you, even when an enemy comes across your pathway. Have you ever stopped to ask God, why in the world did you let that fellow come across my pathway? And you know God does it for a purpose. God does all these things for a purpose. And the thing to do is to be exercised by. Paul said that he wanted to keep under his body. He wanted to exercise because he didn't want to come before God's presence someday and be disapproved. My friend, I don't care where you are or who you are, it's time you're taking your setting-up exercises. And I mean by that, the kind of exercises that are going to put you in a position where you don't go like verse 12, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. Don't walk around through life as a Christian complaining All the time. I used to have a friend that I learned to quit asking him how he felt. Because he always told me how he felt. And it took him 15 minutes to tell you how he felt. And I've never met him when he ever felt good. You see, going around all the time with his hands which hang down and his feeble knees. May I say to you, my friend, somebody's watching you. How do you endure the trouble that comes to you? Do you endure it? By being exercised by, that's the important way, and that's the way we are to endure it. We say, my Heavenly Father, he's chastening me, and there's a purpose in it. I want to learn the lesson. We start, you're setting up exercises. One, two, three. One, two, three. Lord, I'd like to know why I'm suffering this way. Now, notice, he says, make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. And I'll be very frank with you, I've never been quite clear just what he meant by this. Make straight paths for your feet. Are you to walk the straight path that the weak saint might follow in your footsteps? or Are you to walk the straight path so that you don't get in the habit of limping through life. And there are a lot of lame brain Christians today. They complain, they criticize, and they're no witness for God at all, and yet they appear very super pious. Now, he continues on here follow peace with all men. Be encouraged and be at peace with all men, that is, with all that you can be at peace because some people just won't be at peace. And holiness, Follow a peace with all men, that is with all Christian men. Make this a big cross-country race that we're in today, where a lot of us are running the Christian life today. And holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, if that means that I've got to produce holiness, then I'm going to give up, because I don't have any. But the peace that I've got came through the blood of Christ, being justified by faith, I have peace with God. And if I got any holiness, he's been made unto me righteousness, and he is my righteousness. And that's what I'm expecting to see. God, if I get in his presence, it'll be just because Christ died for me. And that's encouraging, friends. That makes me want to get out and run the Christian race. Now we are coming to verse 15. We begin now with the sixth danger signal that we've had in this epistle. As I've called your attention to it, all the way through the epistle, the red light is turned on, a warning sign is given, and certain perils are mentioned. Here it's the peril of denying. And notice what he says in verse 15, looking diligently, and looking diligently, has in it the thought of direction. And what is that direction? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And we are looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, the word here for fail is not the word for apostasy. It doesn't mean that they were in danger of apostasizing. It really means just to fall back. In other words, a believer must keep his eyes on the Lord Jesus, not on man. And if he doesn't keep his eyes, he's apt to get to the place where he doesn't avail himself of the grace of God. Now, God has a tremendous reservoir of grace. He wants to lavish it upon his children, and he's prepared to do that. And he's able to do it because Christ paid the penalty for our sins. God is rich in mercy, rich in grace. And he wants to expend it on us. But the problem is, many of us do not avail ourselves of it. You see, we're talking, friends, about reality. Something that you can go to God and lay hold of. And that is the wonder and the glory of it all. That's been the message of this epistle. Now he says... That if you don't do that, there's a danger, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And one saint in the church, and generally a saint who ain't, that can stir up more trouble than can be possibly imagined. Just like one apple in a barrel of apples just ruins all of them, and that is the thing that can happen. And... The thing to do is you're to ask God for grace, to endure whatever it is, and don't become bitter, Christian friend, toward anyone or any circumstance. Now he goes on and says in verse 16, "...lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright." Now. I think, actually, fornication here is spiritual. There is a danger of turning from God to the things of the flesh, and it could be most anything of the flesh. As far as Esau was concerned, why, he sold a birthright, a spiritual birthright that entailed so much, it meant you'd be in the line that led to the Messiah, meant you'd be the priest of the family of Abraham. But he didn't care for it. Now, when it says here that he was a profane person, it doesn't mean that he cussed a great deal. In fact, it has no reference to that at all. The word profane actually comes from two words. Phanus means temple. Pro means either before or against. And here, apparently, it means against the temple. It means against God. It means that he was just a godless fellow. Esau saw saw no need of any recognition of God or any relationship to him or any responsibility. And so he despised his birthright and he counted it just as being something valueless. And he was even willing to trade it in for a bowl of soup. And there's many a man that has sold his soul. Well, some have sold it for a bottle of liquor. And I think that is worse of all. Some are selling it today for drugs. Some today sell their soul for sex. Some dishonesty. And that's what he's talking about here. There's a danger because as a child of God, you're either going to go forward or you're going to fall back, as he says. You won't stay in the same place. And now verse 17. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And I do not know of a passage that's been so misunderstood as this passage of Scripture right here, because it gives the impression that poor Esau, he wanted to repent and God wouldn't accept his repentance. And we need to recognize that He's saying something here that's altogether different than that. Esau despised this birthright, and then he found out later that there was also an inheritance attached to it, that he would inherit twice as much as any other son of Abraham would inherit. And that's the thing that he was interested in, that which was physical. Now, His repentance is one of shedding of tears. And when it says he sought it carefully with tears, it means that he did a great deal of boohooing about it. And I think I can illustrate this like this. The thief was caught, and the thief began to weep and say he was sorry. Now, he wasn't sorry that he was a thief. He was sorry he'd been caught. Esau was not repenting because of the fact that he wanted to turn to God, wanted something spiritual. He repented because he had missed something, and he cried because of that. And that is the thought that you have here. He's actually against God, as you can see. Now, verse 18, "...for ye are not come under the mount that might be touched." and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they had heard entreated, that the words should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now, I have read to you the passage beginning with verse 18 down through verse 21. And I read all of that because it's quite obvious that what he's talking about here is Mount Sinai. He's speaking of the giving of the law to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. He's speaking of the old covenant. Now, the thing that he's saying here, and again, I think it's quite obvious that what he's saying is just simply this. These people that he's writing to, and we need to keep that before us all the time, they were Hebrews. They were Hebrews who had turned to Christ. Now, again, you must remember that the early church On the day of Pentecost, those 3,000 that were saved were not Gentiles, they were Jews. And the early church, for all of those first few years, until Paul and Barnabas and others of the missionaries began to move out, it was 100% Jewish. And then the Gentiles were saved. Now he's writing to these Jews. Now, many of the Jews in Jerusalem that had turned to Christ... They found themselves here at a great loss. They'd been accustomed to go to the temple. They had been accustomed to hear the law read. Now they're shut away from the law. They're shut out from the temple. They're no longer part of that system at all. And I want to say this, they felt very much on the outside. And now they are being told, and I think Paul here is saying to them, You've come now unto the mount that's different than Mount Sinai. And you don't want to go back to that. Mount Sinai was a place where, when the law was given, 3,000 people were slain. You read that in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, that giving of the law. 3,000 people were slain. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. They died at the giving of the law. They lived at the day of Pentecost and the preaching of the gospel. And the giving of the law is not pretty. That was the sound of the trumpet. That was an earthquake. There was thunder and lightning. And the people, they said, we're frightened. They said to Moses, you go up. And the people were told to stand back and not come near. And some of them got too close. And Paul says, you don't want to go back to that system. And even today, there are people that want to go back to that system that are even Gentile. Now, he says, we've left that system, and we've come away from it. We've got away from that altogether. I remember when I was a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, a lady came up to me. She was a lovely person in many ways. But I always felt that she came in under that designation where Paul spoke of silly women laden with sins, ever learning but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. She was a woman that was sort of a social hanger-on. That is, she belonged to a very wealthy family. She went to their cocktail parties, engaged in their sins. But she still wanted to go to the Bible classes, and she came, attended my church, but she never was a member. But she always pretended to be quite a Bible student, but she was one of those ever learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. She said to me one day, after I'd preached a sermon about the law and how we don't want to get in under it, and she came to me. She says, you know, Dr. McGee, the giving of the law is so beautiful, isn't it? And I had to say to that dear lady, lady, the giving of the law is not beautiful. I see nothing beautiful about it. I think, frankly, it's one of the most frightening scenes there is in the Bible. Well, I said 3,000 people were slain that day. And it was a law that these people were told that they could never be saved by it, and God gave them a sacrificial system. They had to bring a sacrifice. A little animal had to die because the law couldn't save them. It actually condemned them. Now, here we have some of those people in that day. They had been accustomed to go to the temple. They had been going through that ritual. Now there's nothing to go to. There's no ceremony. There's no sacrifice to bring. Now, he says, but you really have something. And will you notice? He says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now, remember he's talking to Israel. Mount Zion, that was David's place. David had a palace up there. And David's buried up there. And I actually think his bones are up there, by the way. I think that's where David is. That was his favorite spot. And he can have it for all I care. I wouldn't want Mount Zion. But he says here to these Jewish believers, many of them there in Jerusalem, many of them still went up to the feast. And he said to them, they won't let you go up to Mount Zion, but you've got a Mount Zion. And under the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've been shut out of Jerusalem now. with persecution had broken out, you see, and Christians had been driven out of Jerusalem. But he says, you've got a heavenly Jerusalem. May I say to you that I think this is quite wonderful here. Mount Zion is the heavenly city, and it's the city of the living God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem, and it's called in Revelation the New Jerusalem. Now, if you want my future address, I'm going to be moving one of these days, I'd like to give it to you. I can't give you the street or the number on the street, but my address is going to be the New Jerusalem. This is the place we've come to. This is our position today. You've got something far better in Christ, he says. Then he says that you've come here to an innumerable company of angels. Now, frankly, I've made the statement, and I want to stick by, that angel ministers not connected with the church. But we're going into the New Jerusalem someday, and I see in book of Revelation a big worship scene there. It's a great scene. John saw it. John said that there was a company of created intelligences there. Well, there was 10,000 times 10,000. And then he looked around and he said, my, I didn't see that other crowd out there more than any man could number. And there, God's created intelligences called angels here. I've never seen an angel. (laughs) Often wondered about them. And I'm going to come someday to the new Jerusalem and We're going to join in that great worship scene with you. We're going to worship the Lamb, and all these created intelligences are there. One of the things I want to do is talk to some of them. I'd like to talk to them, wouldn't you? Never had that privilege. Every now and then I meet somebody down here that tells me they've had a dream and an angel spoke to them. But I always tell them that they ought to go back and find out what they had for supper. That may explain the presence of the angel. You haven't seen an angel today, friend. You may think you have, but you haven't. We're coming to that place someday. Now he says here, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. And here it's the firstborns, and it doesn't mean here Christ, although he's called that. And I won't go into those scriptures, but these are the ones that have been born again. They are the only ones going to be that. This is the church that we're talking about now at the rapture. They're going to be caught up to this place. And their names, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all. And thank God when I get in the presence of the judge, somebody's already paid the penalty of my sins. That'll be taken care of. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, that doesn't mean complete or perfect as you and I think of it. It means Old Testament saints. Now that Christ has died, their salvation has been made complete. And then we are brought also unto Jesus. We are to look to him now. Then we are going to be brought into the presence of Jesus, and he's the mediator of the new covenant. He's not going to thunder from Mount Sinai. Even when he was here, he sat down on a mountain and gave law for his kingdom. And I think it's going to be a lot sweeter when you and I come into his presence someday and see him as the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried for vengeance, but the blood of Christ speaks of salvation. Now, this is important. This is wonderful here. This is great. And this leads me to make this statement, and I hope I have time to do it. We had it back in verse 3. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. They're trying to get these Hebrew Christians to get their eyes off the temple, off of a bloody sacrifice, off of a ritual, and onto the person of Christ. And we need that today to get our eyes off of a church, off of religion, off of an organization, and off of a man, by the way. No man down here should be the one we should be looking to. And I hope you just don't look to this poor, feeble preacher on the Through the Bible radio. Look to Jesus. Look to him. And this seems so simple, you see. The temple, with all its splendor and its ritual, it was passing away to be destroyed. Now they're under a new economy. And somebody says, this is the simplicity of our faith. And I agree with that. But there is a danger of oversimplification under the present methods that are being used today. Now, I have a little book, Faith Plus Nothing Equals Salvation. And I believe that. Faith alone can save you. But we have today an epidemic of believing-ism. These folk today that everlastingly have made salvation a little mathematical problem or a little equation. And if you can say yes to this and yes to that and yes to half a dozen questions, then, brother, you're a Christian. And I don't want to be ugly, but I want to say you're not. Because this type of thing leaves no room for the work of the Holy Spirit, for the conviction of sin. It just means a nodding assent, a passing acquaintance with Jesus. And there's a word today that's being overworked. Commit your life to Christ. What kind of life do you have to commit to Christ, friends? If you're coming as a sinner, you don't even have any life. You're dead in trespasses and sins. He's the one who said, I've come that you might have life. You don't commit a life. He committed his life for you, and he died for you, and you are dead in trespasses and sins, and he has life to offer you. I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And this idea today, and I've fallen in this in the past, give your heart to Jesus. Well, my friend, what do you think he wants, that old dirty heart of yours? Have you ever heard what he said comes out of the heart? Out of the heart comes the dirtiest things that I can think of. Read the list that he gave. You think he wants that old dirty heart? No. He didn't ask you to give your heart to him. He said, I want to give you a new heart. I want to give you a new life. And we need today the conviction of sin that we're sinners. And this idea that we made salvation a very jolly affair. And an evangelistic crusade today is just too ducky. It's just so sweet. It is so lovely. I don't see people come weeping today. I don't see that. And I think today we need an emphasis, a strong emphasis upon the Word of God. Now, in verse 25, he says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. And since he is so wonderful, and since his words are very important, it pays you to pay attention to him. It'll be very profitable to you. For he goes on to say, For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Now, if you want to see what happened to a people under the law, look at the nation Israel even today. Are they living in peace today? They are not. And their story's been really a sad story, really for 1,900 years. And why? Well, they refused to hear him, to hear Jesus. They also had refused to hear the law. And it was because of that that God has judged them. And therefore, it's a pretty serious business Not to listen to this warning. Because you remember the Lord Jesus says, If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know. If you'll do his will, you'll find out whether it's true or not, my friend. But if you refuse, how are you going to escape, as he said before, if you neglect so great a salvation? Now, he says, verse 26, Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And you remember at the giving of the law, there was an earthquake, the mountain rent. At the crucifixion of Christ, there was an earthquake. And God says that the day is coming when he's going to shake everything. When I see these big tall buildings in downtown Los Angeles, I look at them and I say, I want to get a good look today because you may not be there tomorrow. God says he's going to shake this whole earth, and heaven itself. You know why he's going to do that? Let all of his created universe know there's some things that are unshakable. And one of those is a living faith in Jesus Christ. He's the rock that we rest upon, and he cannot be shaken. You want a secure place today? That's the place to go. That's the air raid shelter today that's safe. They want to make this world, they say today, safe. No man can make this world safe, or no United Nations can make it safe. It's not even safe to walk on the street I live on. I don't know about your street, but I have a notion it's very much the same way. He's going to make it safe someday. And in order to do that, he's going to shake everything. Now he says, verse 27, and this word yet once more signifying the removing of those things that are shaken as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. In other words, we've to be very careful where we build our house today. On sinking sand, or are we building it upon the rock, which is Christ? Because God's going to shake everything, and he's going to reveal that which is false and phony. And there's a lot of that. Verse 28, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Now, you and I are moving toward a heavenly kingdom. And as we move toward a heavenly kingdom, why, we need to recognize that we down here should serve God. But how are we to serve him? Well, we'd serve Him acceptably, yes, but how can we serve Him acceptably with reverence and godly fear? My friend, Christianity is not playing church. It's not assuming a pious attitude. It's a living, vital, real relationship to Jesus Christ that affects your life, that transforms your life, and anchors you in the Word of God. Now he says, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. And you can take that or leave it, but that just happens to be in the Word of God. This is a solemn reminder. It means that grace is available for you to serve God, but don't trifle with God, my friend. Don't think you can play fast and loose with God and get by with it. I remember when I first came here to Pasadena, in 1940, as a pastor, I was asked by a lady to go see her husband. And they were a lovely couple, actually. But the husband was sick in bed at home. In fact, never got out of that bed. He died. And I went in and presented the gospel to him, and he heard me courteously. And he said this to me He said, Dr. McGee, I would like to tell you right now that I accept Christ as my Savior. And I will do that. But he says, I have done it so much. I have trifled and played with God down through the years that I don't even know myself when I'm sincere and when I'm not. My friend, don't trifle with God. The day may come when you won't even know where you stand with him at all. I tell you, our God is a consuming fire, but he's a gracious, glorious, wonderful Savior.